0: Welcome to The Hills, all of you watching online and in person at West Holworth, South Lake and North Richland Hills. We have unveiled a new vision for the next five years of our church called Ask for Nations and Generations. And the first word really matters. We're asking God to do great things through our church. And so we started a 40 day commitment to prayer. Just one week to go. This is day 35, and today especially, we are asking God for unreached people groups and that he will show us where we can have an impact. So I'm asking now online at every campus, bow your heads with me. Let's do exactly that. And so, God, we do ask for nations and generations, and specifically today we ask God that we could have impact on those people groups who have not yet heard about Jesus. We affirm three things, God. We affirm that every single person on earth is made in your image, that you love them and they matter to you. We affirm that the gospel of Jesus can save anybody, anywhere. And we affirm that this world belongs to you. And that anywhere where darkness reigns, it does so illegitimately. So we hear the words of Jesus to go into all the world because all authority belongs to Jesus. And so, God, we're sending people into places that have never heard about Jesus, and they're not easy places. We pray that those we send will walk in great courage, discernment, faith, and resilience. And we ask God for these nations We ask that Jesus become famous in the whole world, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, have you ever had one of those want to get away moments? You know what I mean, a moment where the situation is so awkward and embarrassing that all you can think is, I wish I weren't here right now. I had a moment like that a few years ago. I was asked to lead a prayer before the meeting of a local city council. So I showed up and I led the prayer. And when I finished, a council member asked me to lead the council in the Pledge of Allegiance. I wasn't expecting that. And I'm not proud of it, but I had a total brain freeze. All that could come into my mind were the words to the national anthem. And I knew that wasn't right. So for 15 awkward seconds. I just stood in silence in front of the council. Finally, a council member started the words to the pledge and all I could think is I want to get out of here as fast as I can. Because forgotten pledges are embarrassing. And forgotten pledges can lead to forsaken visions and forfeited futures. No one understood that better than Nehemiah. So what we're doing as we unveil our church vision is we're working through the book of Nehemiah, a man used of God to build a better future for his people. And we're gleaning principles that we can apply as we look to the kind of future we want to build in the next five years. Nehemiah is a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. He's serving the king of Persia, and he gets word that the walls of Jerusalem are down. And God puts a burden on his heart. And this guy goes from a1,000 miles away, weeping over a wall, to nine months later, walking on a wall in Jerusalem. In fact, we saw last time in of chapter six that when they actually began, it only took 52 days to finish building the wall. But Nehemiah's mission isn't finished because his vision was never just to have a wall circle the city. His vision was to have a people who built their lives around the Lord God. His vision was a city filled with people that were living stones, building a future that would honor God. Completing the wall just created the environment for his real goal to rebuild the spiritual life of the Jewish people. That's why when you get to the end of chapter six and the wall is finished, the book is not even halfway done. For the next five chapters, we're not gonna read about the wall a single time. Because even though the wall is finished, the work of building a future was just starting. So notice the very first thing Nehemiah does after the wall is built in chapter 7. He said, After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. So the first thing he does after the wall is one, put godly leaders in place. People that fear God. The second thing he did was ensure that public worship could return. The musicians and the Levites, and we'll talk more about that next, but Nehemiah knows if this city's gonna thrive, we need godly leaders, and we need regular public worship. Because he knows The real key is to get a people who build their lives around God. He doesn't want them to put their confidence in the wall. He wants them to put their confidence and hope in the God that enabled them to build the wall. So his real mission is to build allegiance to God. Because think about it, misplaced allegiance is what got them in this mess in the first place. The reason the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom and the reason the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom of Israel was not because they didn't have a law, but because they didn't have a strong commitment to God. Here's the main takeaway of this message. You see, the future you build depends on where you pledge your allegiance. Your destiny is determined by your devotions, your allegiances are deciding your future. Let me give you two illustrations. One of our generation goals is to bless 250 marriages in the next five years. So I've been doing reading about what helps marriages and the research is unassailable, not religious research, secular research, that couples that live together married to each other, thrive in every measurable way more than couples that live together who were not married. Their personal happiness, their emotional and mental health, their sexual satisfaction. At every level, people who were married thrive and do better. This shouldn't surprise us. When God gave the gift of marriage to a man and woman and they become one flesh, it's so they could pursue this thing called intimacy. Now, it's hard to achieve intimacy in a relationship where there's an unspoken understanding that in the future, if it gets hard or if I find someone better, I can leave because I never promised to stay in the first place. You see, your allegiance determines the kind of future you're going to have. Facebook has been in the paper a lot lately. Whistleblowers are saying that this social media platform grows its brand with the full knowledge that allowing literature or posts that are full of hate or even conspiracies actually helps them. Now, you've heard me say before, when it comes to social media, you are not the client. You are the product. And they sell your attention to advertisers, and they know what keeps you online longer is if you get angry or if you get fearful. Now, why should this surprise us? When did Facebook ever pledge allegiance to civility? Facebook pledges allegiance to profit. That's what they do. Your allegiances are deciding the kind of future that you're building. So Nehemiah knows, yeah, we built a wall. But it doesn't matter how big it is, how tall it is, how wide it is, how strong it is. This wall cannot safeguard the future of a nation apart from a core commitment to God. So his agenda is to get the people to pledge allegiance to God. I mean, literally. So what happens in chapter 8, 9, and 10 is a revival breaks out in the city led by Nehemiah. And at a key point in this several-week-long revival, he asks the people to make a pledge. Look at the end of chapter 9. In view of all this, We're making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. We are going to pledge to take God seriously, and we are going to put it in writing. And as we'll see in a moment, it wasn't a generic pledge. It had some very specific promises. So as a church, as we think about our future and the kind of future that we want to build, I think we would do well to make some of the same promises pledges that nehemiah asked his people to make and here's the first pledge to be loyal to the word of god see nehemiah knew a restored wall couldn't protect a people that ignored scripture so after the wall is built the first big event he schedules is a bible bowl look with me chapter 8 all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. As he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, amen. And then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. And then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people have been weeping as they listen to the words of the law. Now, you know, you can tell a lot about how people revere Scripture by the way they hear Scripture. Just by their posture and their demeanor, when they hear the Word, you can tell how much they revere the Word. It says that when they began to hear the Word, they stood up for hours to listen to it. And then they got down on their face as a way of saying, we are submitting to the authority of the word of the Lord. And then they just began to cry because they came under such conviction as they heard the word of God. And they realized they needed the word more than they needed a wall. That hearing the word of the Lord was restoring their sense of national identity. And I want you to know, church, as we think about our future, we've got to maintain that same commitment to Scripture. We must never devalue how critical loyalty and fidelity to the Word of God is to our future. I uh, heard a story about a man. He loved to collect old, valuable books. Talking to a friend, he said, Oh, man, I should have shown you. I was cleaning out my attic. It's been in the house for generations. Threw away a bunch of books, even a Bible by Guten something. He said, Don't tell me you threw away a Gutenberg Bible. It could have been worth millions. Not this one. Some guy named Martin Luther scribbled all over it in German okay do we realize what a treasure it is we have when we hold a bible i know the bible's full of mystery i know there's much in the bible that's hard to understand but i believe the bible is exactly what it claims for itself completely sufficient to reveal to us this is how god wants us to live and this is how we find faith in jesus christ this is not just any book This book written over 1,400 years by 40 people on three continents and three languages, and yet it has such an incredible uh, internal integrity. It tells this one amazing narrative with all these prophecies that come true. This book was inspired by the Spirit of God. Let's be real clear where the Hills Church stands when it comes to the Bible. We do not believe the Bible is just the words of men about God. We believe the Bible is God's word to men. And we're going to stay loyal to that conviction. Somebody says, well, I don't worship the Bible. I worship Jesus. I do too. How do I know about Jesus? God gave me a Bible. I want you to have the same view of the Bible Jesus had. When Jesus wanted to defeat temptation, he quoted scripture. When he challenged tradition, he quoted scripture. When he rebuked opposition, he used scripture. When he explained his mission, he used scripture. When Jesus walked along the road, he went to the Bible, the Old Testament, the prophets, and the law, and he explained who he was using scripture. He used the written word to bring people to faith in the living word. And this is why one of our goals as a church and our new vision is Bible translation. There are still people groups all around the world who don't have a Bible in their language. And we believe if we can help them give the written word into their language, they will read and come to faith in the living word. Jesus of Nazareth. This picture of Anatoly Sharansky, famous Soviet dissident. He kissed his wife goodbye, said, I'll meet you in Jerusalem, and he was arrested. Spent 12 years in Soviet gulags. The only possession he had was a psalm book, the Hebrew songs of praise to Yahweh their God. He refused to give it up, even if it meant spending 130 days in solitary confinement. Finally, after a lot of international pressure, the Soviets released him. They let him out and across the meadow was uh, the Israeli people willing to take him to, to Jerusalem. And suddenly he falls down in the snow. You see, a guard had tried one more time to grab that Bible. And he refused and he clutched it. He would not leave unless he took with him the words that kept him alive all those years. Wherever the future takes us as a church, we are taking the word of God with us. We are pledging to be loyal To the Word of God. Another pledge we need to make is to be honest about our need for grace. You see, as they read the Word, awareness of the Word brought an increased awareness of sin. And so, what follows in chapter 9 is a prayer. In fact, it's the longest recorded prayer in the Bible, and it's almost entirely a prayer of confession. A prayer that acknowledges God's track record of faithfulness and the children's track record of faithlessness. Look in chapter 9 with me. It starts on the 24th day of the same month. So this revival has gone on for several weeks now. It says, The Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth, and putting dust on their heads. And they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession. Confession. And in worshiping the Lord their God, and so uh, we'll read more in just a moment. But but it says they confess their sins and the sins of their ancestors. In fact, the biggest part of the prayer was confessing the sins of their ancestors, going all the way back before Moses. They told the story of a history that kept repeating itself. God, you're good and you're faithful and you rescue us, and then we turn, and we follow other gods, and we make a mess of things, and we cry out, and you rescue us, and we just keep doing the same thing. Look now at verse 30. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples, but in your great mercy... You did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. And all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Now notice, they prayed this prayer after the wall had been built. Wouldn't it make more sense to pray it before when you have no defense God, we're in a mess. We have no wall. We confess all our sins and the sins of our ancestors. No, they prayed it after the wall because what they're acknowledging, God, our problems are not because of our defenses. Our problems are because of our offenses. We keep turning our backs on you and on your word. And so they confess that. They confess their history. What does confess mean? It means tell the truth about God. Tell the truth about yourself. And that meant even telling the truth about your ancestors. Because you cannot build a better future if you keep denying a bitter past. I I do not understand why some people get so angry about the idea of confessing the sins of our ancestors. You see, what we're doing is we're being honest about our need for grace. That's the pledge we make. That God, our hope for the future is not because of how good we've been, but because of how good you are. I've told you that I was raised in a racist church. And I don't mean kind of under the surface racist. I mean overtly racist. Here I am as a pastor trying to lead us into a future that's more multi-ethnic that appreciates all the nations God is bringing to us. How can I do that if I don't take time to confess and say, God, my heart breaks and I grieve that in my past I've been a part of churches that were racist? Does that make me a weaker leader? I would like to think it makes me a better leader. It makes me aware that those seeds could be in me, that I'm not better than anybody in my past. I just want to learn from my past and confess my past so I can have a better future. But it doesn't depend on how good I am. It depends on how good God is. That's what they prayed. You are the great and merciful God. You're the God that keeps his covenant of love. So as we move into the future, we can be honest about our mistakes in the past. And I'll tell you something else, we're gonna make mistakes in the future. But our hope for the future is in the constant faithfulness and goodness of God. We build because of God's grace. Yes. By the way, we sang that pledge earlier in this service. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor! Daily I'm constrained. To be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Never let me wander from thee. Never leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. What are we doing when we sing that? We're confessing God, we're sinners. Our hearts wander. You need to take our hearts, you need to seal our hearts. We are dependent on your grace. That's how we build a future. And by the way, grace doesn't eliminate our need to obey God. Grace motivates our desire to obey God. And that's the third pledge we make, to be loyal to the Word, to be honest about our need for grace, and to be obedient when it's radical and costly. And the people began to realize their future didn't depend on keeping up a wall, but on keeping in God's will. So the last pledge they make gets very specific about some of the commitments they're going to start keeping. And each one is difficult because every commitment they make is going to make them very different from the people groups around them. In fact, notice chapter 10, verse 28, the rest of the people the priests the levites the gatekeepers musicians temple servants and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand all these now joined their fellow Israelites the nobles and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses the servant of God and to obey carefully all the commands regulations and decrees of the Lord our God who made this oath who made this promise It said it was made by the people that separated themselves from the neighboring peoples. Because they knew if we're going to keep our promises, we can't be like the people all around us. Now, specifically, here's what they promised. Number one, God, we're going to stop letting our children marry the children of our idol-worshiping neighbors. We're going to stop that. Number two, God, we're going to stop doing business on the Sabbath. Our stores and our markets have been open and we're going to stop and start closing on the Sabbath. And number three, we're going to start our tithing to the house of God. In fact, eight times, we're going to take care of the house of God by bringing our tithes. Now, here's why those promises are important, why they were radical and costly, because each promise was saying, God, we're depending on you for the future. You see, that promise not to let our kids marry, here's what was behind that. In those days... The way you kept the neighboring peoples from starting wars with you is you got your kids to intermarry. So what they're basically saying is, God, we're not going to trust our future anymore to political alliances with nations that don't fear you. And doing business on the Sabbath is what all the peoples around them did. They made a lot of coin by being open seven days a week. If we don't get their business, they're going to take it somewhere else. But we're going to trust our future to you, God. And on the Sabbath, we're going to close shop. And tithing, now that's costly, God, because you never asked for the last tenth. You always asked for the first. You said the first animal born is mine. The first part of the crop that comes in is mine. The first tenth of your salary is mine. And we're going to start bringing our tithe. And here's why obedience is radical and costly. Because it asks the question, will God make up what I give up? You see, the vision that we're pursuing as a church will be costly. And where we put our money reveals where we put God. I'm quoting Jesus there. Jesus said, Where you place your treasure is the single greatest indicator of where you have pledged your allegiance. Jesus says, Follow the money, and you will find out where the heart has really been pledged. This vision is going to be costly. In fact, our harvest offering in two weeks, we need $2.6 million. That's about 10 times a normal weekly offering. All these missionaries that we're sending to unreached peoples, all the Bible translation work we're doing, all the churches we're planting, the local partners we're uh, working with, all that money comes from harvest offering. And we need to radically sacrifice because we have pledged our allegiance to God and to do that makes us a peculiar people we do things with our money that make no sense unless God is real Jesus is Lord and allegiance to them decides our future and I really believe it does I really do believe that our best possible future comes when we say yes to God, no matter what it costs. When I was writing this sermon this week, a memory came to my mind that I hadn't thought of in years. I was a baby preacher, I was single, didn't know better. I got involved in a young couple who wanted me to do marriage counseling, which I had no business doing. That was my first mistake. The second mistake is I met with the young woman privately. I was dumb and didn't know better. And in the course of our conversation, she made it very clear that if I wanted our relationship to go beyond what was appropriate, she was perfectly willing to let it go there. And I said no and promised I would never put myself in that situation again. Say, of course you said no. You're a pastor. And you're afraid you will lose your job. That had nothing to do with why I said no. Well, you didn't want to hurt Jamie's feelings. I didn't even know Jamie at the time. Here's why I said no. Because many years before, on a cold Sunday in February, I stood in a baptistry. And I was asked this question. Do you understand when you get baptized that you're asking Jesus to be the Lord of your life for the rest of your life? And I said yes. And the only way I could have said yes to that woman's offer was to say no to the promise I made to Jesus. Your future is determined by where you pledge your allegiance. So, I'm going to get on the edge for the next three minutes, and I want you to lean in. I'm wondering why in the last few years, especially in America, Christians and churches keep finding themselves in awkward, embarrassing moments. And I'm going to contend it's because we've forgotten our pledge. Perhaps it's because we've been taught a wrong gospel, a transaction gospel, not a transformation gospel. Here's what I mean. We've been taught a gospel that says, say yes to Jesus and accept him, and he'll forgive your sins and get you into heaven. Instead of a gospel that says, I'm calling you to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus and live every day of your life on the earth like him. And as long as I'm just a transaction Christian, as long as Jesus' job is just to punch my ticket into heaven, I can do whatever I want on the earth, and I can have other allegiances. Could that explain why Christians are fighting so much over politics? Because we think our allegiance to a political party secures the future. And Christians on the right and on the left will just turn their head and pretend they don't see horrific, unethical behavior? Policies in the platforms of both parties that should disturb a Christ follower? Because our allegiance is to partisanship more than it is to the kingdom of God. How else could you explain the way Churches, Catholic and Protestant the last number of years, have covered up the horrific sin of sexual abuse of women and children. The very victims Jesus would have been the first to stand with. But the allegiance was to the church's image and to keeping political and ecological power. How can you explain that people can break into a federal building and attack police officers and hold banners that say Jesus? Except that their allegiance is to a particular ideology of nationalism more than it is to the kingdom of God. And we find the church and Christians in these awkward, embarrassing moments because we have forgotten pledge and forgotten pledges lead to forsaken visions and forfeited futures and I don't want that for us I don't want it for you I want you to have the best possible future you could have I don't believe Jesus is just the only way to God I believe Jesus is the best way to live Amen. and so Here's my advice. Remember your pledge of allegiance to Jesus. Do you remember when you bowed your head? Do you remember when you surrendered your heart? Do you remember when you stood in a baptistry and someone asked you if Jesus was your Lord? Don't let the world make you forget your pledge. It is our hope for the future god wants us to have let's bow our heads so father i pray in the name of jesus that if i've said anything that will bring a heart closer to submission to christ that that word will go deep and bear fruit father we confess our sins We confess that we have not always been the people we should be, but we also confess, God, that you are good and gracious and the hope for our future. And so, God, we pledge again our allegiance that we will seek first the kingdom of God, that we want Jesus to be famous all over the world. We pray this in his name. Amen.